Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 12th through Saturday, the 14th, feature guest conductor, guest violinist, and guest violist Julian Rockland leading the orchestra. The program includes Beethoven's Overture to the Creatures of Prometheus. Rockland teams up with associate concertmaster Stephanie Jung in Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante in E flat. Also on the program, the Alexander Glazunov arrangement for violin and orchestra of the meditation from Tchaikovsky's Souvenir of a Cherished Place and the Linz Symphony, Mozart's Symphony Number no. 36. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on the Creatures of Prometheus Overture by Beethoven, the overture lasting about five minutes. The Creatures of Prometheus marked Beethoven's introduction to the Viennese stage. Its swift, easy composition and immediate popular success in no way predicted that his major theatrical undertaking, the opera Fidelio, would take 10 years to perfect, and even then it attracted considerable criticism. But ballet is not opera, and in 1801, Beethoven's decision to write music for Prometheus to dance to was not charged with the same deeply personal issues raised by the story of Leonora and Florestan. The idea for The Creatures of Prometheus came from the celebrated Neapolitan choreographer Salvatore Vigano, who normally wrote his own music. For this work, however, which was to be presented for the Empress Maria Theresia at the Vienna Court Theater, Vigano picked an unusually serious, heroic, allegorical subject, and then turned to Beethoven for music of corresponding importance. Although Vigano assumed Beethoven had never written for the dance before, his slight, earlier Ritter ballet had intentionally been passed off as the work of Count Waldstein, Beethoven had already proved in his first two piano concertos, First Symphony and the Pathétique Sonata, that he recognized that music was a dramatic language. We know very little about Vigano's production of The Creatures of Prometheus, or even about ballet in general at the beginning of the 19th century. Ballet, as an art form independent of opera, was relatively new, and Vigano was one of the first to give it depth and character. The playbill for the first performance provides this synopsis. This allegorical ballet is based on the myth of Prometheus. The Greek philosophers who knew of him elucidate the story in the following manner. They depict Prometheus as a lofty spirit who, finding the human beings of his time in a state of ignorance, refined them through art and knowledge and gave them laws of right conduct. In accordance with this source, the ballet presents two animated statues who, by the power of harmony, are made susceptible to all the passions of human existence. Prometheus takes them to Parnassus to receive instruction from Apollo, god of the arts, who commands Amphion, Arion, and Orpheus to teach them music. Melpomene, Anthalia, tragedy, and comedy. Terpsichore aids Pan, who introduces them to the pastoral dance, which he has invented, and from Bacchus they learn his invention, the heroic dance. Beethoven wrote an overture, an introduction, fifteen numbers, and a finale for his two-act ballet. The overture begins with a dissonance even more arresting than the one that opens his first symphony. The brilliant Allegro section, bristling with energy, often is said to represent Prometheus fleeing from heaven after stealing fire from the gods. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the overture to the ballet Creatures of Prometheus by Beethoven.
And now on to Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante in E-flat, a work lasting about 30 minutes. Although Mozart regularly wrote concertos for his own public appearances as a pianist, in the late 1770s he became fascinated with the idea of concertos for more than one soloist. As a kind of preview, he composed a concertone, literally a big concerto, for two solo violins with a prominent oboe part in 1774, and then, in a sudden outpouring so typical of this young composer, came a concerto for flute and harp, followed by one for two pianos, and finally this work featuring solo violin and viola, all three of them written in 1778 and 1779. But that is not all. Mozart also began a concerto for piano and violin in 1778, and another for violin, viola, and cello the following year, and abandoned both scores when the concerts for which they were intended were cancelled. This Sinfonia Concertante, the unfinished work for violin, viola, and cello, bears the same title, is, as the name suggests, something of a genre blender, interweaving the front-of-stage virtuosity of the concerto with the depth and importance of the symphony. Mozart knew both solo instruments exceedingly well. He was himself a highly accomplished violinist, and perhaps more significantly, the son of the man who wrote the most important violin treatise of the day, and one, in fact, that was still in use into the 20th century. But Mozart often picked the viola when he played chamber music, partly because, like many composers, he enjoyed taking a middle voice in the texture, and possibly as a kind of rejection of his father Leopold's identification with the violin. In writing for two instruments he knew so well, Mozart makes a choice only a very thoughtful composer would make. He emphasizes the subtle differences in color and timbre rather than the simple difference in range between them. The dialogue Mozart writes for them is as engaging and complicated as that of two characters in one of his operas. Mozart enriches the orchestral fabric by dividing the violas into two sections, much the way that he creates a new sound world in some of his greatest chamber music by adding an extra viola to the standard string quartet. Mozart writes the three standard movements of the concerto form, which of course in his hands are never conventional in content, detail, or overall architecture. The first is spacious and majestic, with the powerful drama of having not one but two soloists pitted against the orchestra. Their joint entrance, sweeping in from the background on a sustained high E-flat, is magical. In George Balanchine's highly musical 1947 choreography, the two principal ballerina roles corresponding to the solo instrument, they leave the stage in the passages when the violin and viola are silent. The central andante is a deeply moving duet. There is an unexpected darkness in this music, one of Mozart's relatively rare minor mode slow movements, as if Mozart were finally processing the death of his mother in Paris the previous year. The finale is almost by necessity, after the deeply probing andante, light, jovial, and even mischievous. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante for Violin and Viola, K364. And now, on to Mozart's Symphony No. 36 in C major, the Linz Symphony. The performance time, around 31 minutes. Linz, 
the capital of Upper Austria, and now a large industrial center straddling the banks of the Danube, has given its name to a torta of jam, cloves, cinnamon, and almonds, as well as to this symphony by Mozart. The origins of the Linzer Torte are long forgotten. The symphony is better documented, although no amount of information can explain how such impeccable music arose from such unfavorable conditions. In July 1783, after some deliberation, much procrastination, and several false starts, Mozart and his new wife Constanza set off for Salzburg so that Constanza could meet Leopold Mozart, the man who had carefully arranged virtually everything in his son's life except for this marriage. Although Constanza would later destroy all the letters documenting Leopold's anger at his son's wedding, there was no getting around the strain of living under the same roof for several weeks that summer and autumn. For Constanza, it was tedious and miserable. For Mozart, it was ultimately more material for the operas in which he would make something timeless and surpassingly beautiful of human frailty. On October 26, Constanza sang the high-flying soprano solos in her husband's great C minor mass when it was performed for the first time in Salzburg's St. Peter's Abbey. The next day, at 9.30 in the morning, Constanza and Wolfgang left Salzburg for Vienna by way of Linz. Although they were both probably relieved to say goodbye to Leopold and Nanner, Wolfgang's beloved sister, who would later write that her brother had married against his father's will, a girl not at all suitable for him, Wolfgang couldn't resist writing to his father from Linz on October 31st, recounting their arrival there the preceding day. When we reached the gates of Linz, we found a servant waiting there to drive us to Cantons, at whose house we are now staying. I really cannot tell you what kindness the family are showering on us. On Tuesday, November 4th, I am giving a concert in the theater here, and as I have not a single symphony with me, I am writing a new one at breakneck speed, which must be finished by that time. Well, I must close because I really must set to work. Understandable words, for between October 30th and November 4th, Mozart had to write a new symphony, copy the parts for the players, and even find time for the luxury of a rehearsal or two before the evening performance. There's something about the matter-of-fact tone of Mozart's letter, I have not a single symphony with me, as if he had forgotten to pack a, an extra pair of socks, that suggests he wasn't daunted by the task he had to undertake. Still, producing a masterwork on short notice is no small accomplishment, even for a composer as facile in the sense of fluent, assured, and poised as Mozart. We know almost nothing about the November 4th concert except that it took place as scheduled with an orchestra probably supplied by the Tun family, who also provided Mozart's lodging, and that the new C major symphony apparently was finished in time and performed as planned. Mozart presented it in Vienna the next April, where it was billed as a quite new Grand Symphony, the Linz nickname not yet used to give distinction to the town of its birth. 
Nothing in the music suggests the haste of its conception. In fact, the opening bars, the first slow introduction in Mozart's symphonies, gives opposite impression of deliberate, carefully considered music, more deeply serious than customary to open a symphony. Beethoven is said to have tried to recapture Mozart's achievement at the beginning of a C major symphony he left incomplete before moving on to his first symphony. The ensuing Allegro Spiritoso is large and ideally proportioned. The Andante, sometimes mislabeled Poco Adagio, admits trumpets and drums into a symphonic slow movement for the first time, lending a mood of tragedy and drama to otherwise gracious and melodic music. Again, Beethoven followed suit in his first symphony in the same key probably not knowing that Haydn had also begun to include those instruments by then. Haydn's name, in fact, is the one that comes to mind in the minuet and trio, partly because not even Mozart could surpass his older colleague in these traditional forms, although, as this music attests, he could still put his stamp on its archaic conventions. In his next symphony, the Prague, Mozart omits this movement altogether. The finale, with its unmistakable air of brilliantly wrapping things up as quickly as possible, or presto, as Mozart dictates, also suggests that Mozart knew his Haydn well and that he was inspired and challenged by this great man, whom he would publicly salute within the year as his most dear friend. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Symphony No. 36, The Linz Symphony. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.